0: And Welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Maria Mostajo. Maria Mustaho is a lawyer who began her legal career in 1992 as a prosecutor in the Bronx, where she handled street-level and violent crime prosecutions. She later worked in the office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor, where she worked with state and federal law enforcement in investigating and prosecuting interstate and large-scale narcotics traffickers. Maria returned to the Bronx DA's office between 2008 till 2010 to prosecute elected officials before becoming Inspector General and Associate Commissioner to the Department of Investigation, New York City's Internal Affairs Department, Where she oversaw waste, mismanagement, and corruption investigations involving city employees. She retired in 2017 and now serves on various nonprofit boards. So, Maria, welcome to Revolutionary Women.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Thank you for coming on. And I'd like to talk to you about your career as a lawyer. You were your first um job was a prosecutor in the Bronx, uh, in the Bronx DA's office. Um, can you tell me if you always wanted to be a lawyer?
1: Sure. Um, I actually did. Going back to as far as I can remember, I had this sort of plan that I was going to go to college and then go to law school. And I've thought a lot about it. And I think it stemmed from uh, being the child of immigrants. My family came from Bolivia. And I remember as a I don't know, little kid, I probably was like 12 or 13 years old when my parents bought our, our first home. And I remember being with them at the bank and also at the closing and sort of translating, but also advocating for my parents and our family and knowing that I had this ability and knowing that I was helping. And so even back then, I realized that I wanted to be that kind of lawyer that was going to help and advocate for people.
0: So growing up, you were already um, aware of advocacy and really wanting to be of service to people.
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, it came also from my dad. My dad, although you know, we didn't come from a lot of means was very generous and always aware of people who had less than us and a feeling that he could help. And it's kind of, you know, a joke in my family that we would often be going on a Saturday or Sunday to, uh, Hopkinton state park, which is this great, uh, lake that we would go for a barbecue in the summer. And there would often be, you know, young people with their, um, picnic stuff, walking towards that lake. And my dad would always stop and give somebody a ride. And we would joke, like he would pick up hitchhikers, but that was his sense of, Hey, I've got a car. These people are walking. Why not help them out? So I I think he was a role model in that way of always being generous, you know, in spirit and helping people out. And so that also contributed to my desire to be of service and be helpful in the work that I, you know, eventually decided to do.
0: That's really wonderful, you know, seeing that and growing up with him as a role model and and realizing that your um your way of of giving back was through service. Yes. That's absolutely. really so how did you get started with um with working for the Bronx DA's office?
1: So I grew up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and I went to college and law school in Boston, and I definitely thought maybe it'd be nice to leave the Boston area uh, for a little bit. So I applied to a bunch of jobs, and during law school, I had competed in these mock trial competitions and had actually you know, very successfully gone on to the finals in Hartford, Connecticut, I think it was, in my third year of law school and from that i ended up working in an internship uh, at the da's office and i really thought oh my god this is incredible i could actually be a public advocate as a prosecutor so i, I applied to a lot of different jobs and ended up at the bronx da's office and even though you know i had learned a lot about the job and and was excited about it i don't think i realized how intense and how incredible the experience was going to be. I went from Brookline, Massachusetts to the South Bronx, and it was probably one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had because it is the kind of job where you learn on the job. My first probably two, three weeks were training, and then I was in the courtroom. I was assigned cases, and initially my cases were helping people who uh, were victims of, of a purse snatching or victims of maybe uh, somebody stole their chain as they were walking through a park. So those are, you know, small petty crimes. But later, I handled cases that involved burglaries and robberies, and then uh, violent crimes involving gang members. And while I was putting people in jail, which is, you know, what people think prosecutors do... There was a lot of working with the the crime victims and preparing them for testimony, preparing them, you know, for w- what the courtroom is going to be like, but also helping them find social services that might help them with whatever other needs that they might have that put them maybe in a, in a you know predicament of being a victim of a crime. So it was multifaceted work, but it was also trial work. So if my case went to trial, I had to prep my witnesses and I had to prepare my opening statements and my evidence. And I actually learned a lot about myself. And I learned that I very much liked being a uh, public speaker. So I enjoyed the trial work a lot.
0: That was a a lot of responsibilities for sure. Did you ever feel like you was this something that you were hoping to get more involved in or was it always was it always that busy
1: I think it was busy but I think that it was a kind of job where if you wanted to be a prosecutor that you know pled your cases out and work 9 to 5 you could do that but I really enjoyed the interaction with my victims I really enjoyed the you know, combative nature of trial work. Um, and so I took on more and more cases. But later on, and this is sort of an interesting segue to, you know, being a woman working in this field, but also I, I later was married and had a family. And so I did have to sort of make some choices about life work balance. And then I ended up shifting to the uh, Manhattan DA's office where I was a narcotics prosecutor. And there, there was more balance to the work because instead of doing exclusively trial work, I was uh, doing more long-term investigations. So I was able to um, manage both having a family and uh, you know, a, a career. And there, I also was fortunate in that you know, during, this was right after 9-11, there was a shift in sort of the law enforcement world from the 90s where the Rockefeller laws, it was all about putting people in jail, first, second, third strike, and, and people, you know, incarcerated for narcotics-related crimes were going to jail for 15, 20 years. Um, but there was a shift when I was there in, in the you know, 2000s. And and there was an understanding that people were involved in the marijuana sale or narcotics trade as a result of poverty, as a result of um, you know, not, not having access to uh, programs or education, or even also as a result of substance abuse problems. And so uh, as a senior prosecutor, I had the ability to decide whether people could go into rehab facilities or alternative sentencing programs, which um, I was a a, a big proponent of and and very involved in uh, having individuals that I had either arrested or prosecuted go into these programs where they would get drug treatment program, educational training, particularly for young people. Um, It was an opportunity to also, if they successfully completed these programs, um, wipe out their record and come out and uh, and be able to hopefully either go to school or work.
0: That's really something. Um, did you find with your clients, were they more did you find that there were a lot more young people getting involved in these crimes or it didn't it like what was it really basically like it didn't the population was equal?
1: Um, That's such a great question. Yes, that's such a great question, because I would say a lot of the street level narcotics or marijuana cases that I handled were so many young black Hispanic men. Um, And this is all over Manhattan, upper Manhattan, downtown. um, And it was a lot of young men. And many of them, as I said, were just this was the way that they could make a living or this was the introduction to how they could provide for themselves or their families and so you know we we would try with the first offender even a second offender to offer them the alternative sentencing programs um mm-hmm. But later on, after I'd been there for for a while, and I started taking on more serious cases that involved Mm -hmm. larger scale organizations that were trafficking across state lines and were bringing in, you know, oxycodone and heroin, those um, individuals that I investigated and prosecuted were older, Mm -hmm. had been involved in the trade for a much longer period of time. And interestingly, had never been offered these alternative sentencing programs. So it was almost like we got them too late. Um, Even if we wanted to offer them alternative sentencing programs, they weren't that interested because their their organizations were so large or um, they were okay with going to jail for a year to three years on a first offense because that would be a sentence of one to three or two to four years if it was a more serious matter, because they knew they could serve their time, come back out and the, and the business would still be there. So it was really interesting that the different kinds of people we prosecuted, the street level, as I said, young, Mm -hmm. very young, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old black and Hispanic men. And then the large scale narcotics organizations were definitely older um, individuals and organizations
0: what do you think the percentage is of um, first offenders that would come back into the system?
1: Uh, Repeat Mm -hmm. offenders? I mean, I don't know what that is today, but I would Mm -hmm. tell you that in the, you know, late 2000s, um, it was definitely, especially in upper Manhattan, in Harlem and Washington Heights, it was 60, 70 percent for sure, for sure.
0: Wow, That's a large number. It's <laughs> yes. a large percentage. Yeah. Now when you would um, now when you would work with these, I guess, offenders, were they aware that they would go to jail? and were they aware that they, they could go for a lot longer if they sure. came back?
1: Sure. So, so for example, I can I can probably talk about an individual that that we really um, worked hard. So there was this young man who was seventeen uh, out of Washington Heights. He he was Dominican, and he was running a marijuana business that was incredibly successful out of Washington Heights on Post Avenue. And he was arrested, and I we interviewed him because what we wanted to do is understand if he was, you know, the leader or if he was the little underling. And and we really wanted to sort of penetrate the organization so we could sort of dismantle it. But it turned out that he was this young entrepreneurial kid and um, didn't really want to be doing this, but didn't have a lot of other options. Anyways, Mm -hmm. long story short, we offered him a program where if he uh, pled guilty he could go into a drug rehab educational program and it would take him uh, 18 months to complete. And this program also mm-hmm. was residential. So we, we found that the most successful offenders who go into the programs kind of had to leave the community where they were, you know, doing the, what they were doing in order to get success. So it was a residential program and um, I won't use his last name, but Orlando end up successfully completing the program and then (laughs) at the end of that his record was dismissed and uh sadly two years later we saw him again um really yeah so disheartening so disheartening but he just wasn't able to find employment this is according to him that brought in the kind of money that his marijuana business, um, had brought in. So unfortunately the second time he came in, um, he was not interested in a program again. Um, so he ended up pleading guilty and also unfortunately for him, he was not a, a citizen of the United States. He was a resident, but at that no. time, Immigration and INS was rounding up any non citizens, even if you were a resident, and prosecuting uh, you. And he was eventually deported. And all of this we explained to him on that first arrest. So he knew the consequences. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, young brain, all of the issues hmm. that he was facing just didn't, I guess, register.
0: That's really, uh, sad to hear you, even after all of the, you know, even after spending time in the program. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, so the, but for, for every, I mean, there were many successful stories. I mean, I can tell you, uh, one amazingly successful story was this, uh, one kid brilliant. I mean, brilliant kid. He was like a chess player. He uh, played instruments. Um, but he was also out basically uh, stealing people's phones or wallets. We, we got him for three or four robberies in a row and uh, we put him into a program. He didn't have a substance abu- abuse, abuse pro- 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 problem, but he was not staying in school regularly and he was just getting himself into trouble. And he ended up in one of our programs, a residential program in upstate New York. He wanted to be as far away from his family and he eventually went to college And I lost track of what he did after that, but he Mm -hmm. never returned. Or as far as I know, you know, in the time that I knew him, did not return to uh, Harlem, but chose to live somewhere up in Albany where he ended up going to school, and it changed his life.
0: Wow. So he was one of the success stories.
1: One of the success stories.
0: That's awesome. You know, that's, that's heartening to hear because so many of what, I hear or what I see on, you know, either on TV or what I hear about, the statistics aren't that great, you know, but I don't really know because I'm not in that environment. So in an environment where it is hard to find a job or even to fend for yourself, you know, it it does, I guess. The odds
1: are against them, you know, the young for minorities, the odds, unfortunately, are against them, un- very unfortunately.
0: Wow. That's really... Uh, is there... A, I mean, working in that capacity, do you always... Do you sometimes wish it's like, okay, why are you doing this? Why can't you... You know, I mean...
1: Yes. I don't know. No, okay. no. It's, it's a, a, another great question, Tess. It, it, you know, there, there is some burnout that does happen to, for prosecutors. And th- I was fortunate in that um, there was a time when I was prosecuting uh, mostly corrections officers that were either bringing in contraband into the jails or corrections officers that were involved in uh, allowing inmates to sort of have um, fights or facilitating gang activity inside the jail so I was prosecuting these corrections officers and I did it for a few years and I realized Mm -hmm. okay I could just you know put one bad guy after another bad guy in jail but Mm -hmm. what is this doing for the bigger picture of society and how am I actually making a difference if I'm just you know putting these guys one after the other in jail. And then that's when I made my shift from being a prosecutor to working internal affairs for the city of New York, and there I became the inspector general for the Department of Corrections and a bunch of other city agencies, and in addition to, you know, rooting out corruption and 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 you know the bad guys from city government, I was able to look at the dis- different systems and processes in place and write policies and recommendations and actually make big changes to the city agencies. For example, um, we changed the standards for hiring correctional staff because it's a really tough job and they need to be better educated. They need to be better vetted before mm working in such a high pressure uh, position. And so that came out of a bunch of investigations we did. We also um, changed the way that correctional staff enter the jails. If you were going to visit a friend or a boyfriend or a relative in jail, you go through Mm -hmm. so much security. You are first searched when you enter, you know, the Island, which is Rikers Island. Then you are searched when you get to the specific jail that you're going to be visiting, your relative or your, you know, uh, friend, and then you're searched again a third time in the b- before you go into the room where you're going to have your visit. But correctional staff never got searched, and so we changed uh, in 2015 the policy that every correctional staff had to go through security. That didn't happen in Rikers Island before that, because we learned interesting. Our I weapons. mean, weapons. And selling huh. them to inmates. We learned they were bringing in drugs and letting them sell them among, you know, the, the the gangs in the jails. So it was a shift to be able to identify vulnerabilities, come up with changes that would impact the way an agency is run. And so that's wow. how I got past the, oh, my God, uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, making a difference. Well, so
0: uh, let me get back to um, your work with the, uh, in internal affairs. Um, so, so the system prior to you getting on with internal affairs, the system for corrections officers, they were never flagged. They were never, that was never flagged before. That was, ne- I mean, they, all that corruption them. was going on. And so there
1: there was a lot of corruption that was going on. We would, and I think because I had come from a, uh, narcotics background, I mm-hmm. was able to look at the amount of drugs that we identified were being sold at Rikers Island by inmates. Uh, and we were tr- able to look at it, you know, we brought in the DEA and New York um, City police officers that, are, that kind of are experts in this area to listen to recordings of inmates with their family members or friends. And what we identified was that the way the drugs were getting into the jail was Mm -hmm. through the corrections officers. So let's say I'm in jail. I would have my girlfriend meet corrections officer X and give him, you know, Mm -hmm. 50 pills of oxycodone. Officer X would charge my girlfriend, you know, whatever he wanted because it was they charged a lot of money and then he would bring it in because nobody was checking him as he was coming into the jail and then give it to me, the inmate and then I would sell it in the jail. So uh, the security was unbelievably lax for correctional staff um, and that we changed. We also uh, since then uh, they've also implemented rules that security staff are also undergo. Um, uh, we have canine that go through the jails and are also, and that was a big battle because as you can imagine, the correctional staff have a very powerful union and the mm-hmm. union is incredibly opposed to it, but we were able to make a bunch of cases that highlighted this as a serious issue and a serious vulnerability. And in the end, uh, the department of corrections instituted rules that allowed staff to be checked even by canine.
0: Wow. That's amazing to hear. I I like really, um, I'm floored by that. I didn't realize how rampant it was. Yeah. Um, that kind of corruption in in a correctional facility. How long before it actually took before it, all that whole system was? I guess um,
1: those changes were
0: made. Sure, sure, sure. Changed, so I think- yeah.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to think. I started uh, there, I would say, in 2010, and I was the inspector general there for about two years, and then I later became associate commissioner for a, a three or four years. So I would say over the course of four years, mm-hmm. we made case after case after case showing the Department of Corrections leadership that this was a vulnerability. So in order to get them to change the policies and procedures, we had to show them in you know, with real evidence that this was mm-hmm. an issue. So I would say that we hammered them with with case after case and, and arrested many, many corrections officers for everything from bringing in drugs to also having, you know, relationships with inmates, which is also illegal because inmates are unable to consent um, to having a, a, a sexual relationship with, with a corrections officer. So we were able to show them and then after uh, having a bunch of those cases successfully prosecuted, we were able to convince the leadership to make these changes. So I would say over the course of three or four years.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't realize that that was also an issue, um, corrections officers having relationships with inmates. that Was that rampant as well?
1: Yes. I mean, as you can imagine, particularly um, the most vulnerable inmates are women. Um, mm-hmm for that kind of abuse and and maltreatment but also the lgbt community um i had a case where um a uh transsexual uh first was placed in a uh jail cell among men when mm-hmm. he, she was transitioning to be a woman and that was lack of sensitivity on the part of the jail, and eventually, um, when transferred to the right facility, was harassed and sexually uh, abused. So, uh, unfortunately, that did happen a lot, where um, there was a lot of non-consensual. But even what you know we would consider consensual, because the the inmate and the staff person had sexual relationships under the law, it can't be consensual because an inmate doesn't have the ability to consent like a child in that power dynamic. It just, the law does not um, recognize that as consent because of the power dynamic.
0: Wow. Was that something that, well, did you, when you started making changes, did you initially get... um, I, did you initially get negative responses from the correctional system? Yes. Or so, turn, it's
1: okay. so it's it's all about sort of educating the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's all about for when when there's so much volume, because back then, I, I don't know if you followed it, but Rikers Island um, in the last two years is on its way to getting closed. And, and de Blasio has... Made great strides in reducing this with the help of the all the prosecutors um, who have um, released low level, uh, you know, individuals waiting for their cases to go to trial, low level cases. Um, So the so the numbers of inmates has dropped drastically. But back then, and this is in like 2013 through 2017, um, the jails were over full and. Their response was, we're arresting them in such volumes, and they're coming from the precincts or the courts to Rikers Island to wait for their cases to go to trial. So we have a system where we process them quickly. We put them into the different jails that we have at Rikers Island, depending on their age, the severity of the crime that they're being charged, their gang affiliations, and their gender, (laughs) And it it was just like, boom, boom, boom. It was like, you know, you had five boxes and you got the bodies and you just throw them in the boxes that you think they deserve and belong in, and they're just moving them (laughs) like cattle. And so it, it did, there was a lot of resistance and it did require, again, showing them instances where there are vulnerable populations that are being maltreated or abused, or that their system is not picking up on a, you know, vulnerability and highlighting those things to get again, the leadership to acknowledge it and make changes.
0: Wow. How long did that go on? I mean, until they finally said, okay, until you've proven to them that you had these cases, and then, you know, they had to pay attention.
1: Yeah, I think that that's like still an ongoing process, to be honest with you. It, um, I think really? that we had to bring in, the, so the, the jails also have a, a medic medical staff. And so medical staff was hugely helpful in um, this uh, situation because the medical staff would be responsible for making sure that inmates that were transitioning were receiving the proper medication and would, would become advocates for mm-hmm. inmates. And as a result, uh, we could together bring it to the attention of the of the jail uh, leadership. So I don't know how, how it is now, to be honest with you, but I know mm-hmm. that uh, there's been more segregation for you know the vulnerable populations. You've
0: had a pretty rigorous career, like putting people who are who really need to be in jail uh, and fighting for those who don't deserve to be in jail that's
1: that's a lot it's, it's a balance on. it's a balance mm-hmm. and i think with the job of being a prosecutor or working sort of an, inter- an internal fa- affairs there there comes a lot of power but there mm-hmm. also comes a lot of responsibility to look at things very closely. And I remember, you know, my boss in internal affairs, Rose Gilhern, she was the commissioner for, it's called the New York City Department of Investigation. And uh, amazingly smart woman, tough as nails. But one of the things that I remember her teaching me was that you couldn't make a judgment or a decision harshly, harsh, uh, rashly, excuse me, you really had to look, and this was her um, phrase, under every hood and assess. And I took that to heart. So when you have a case or an individual, you have to really look deeply at so many different aspects of the, the investigation, the, the person, um, when you have the ability to you know, send someone to jail or offer them a program or... Uh, make recommendations to an agency to change policy and procedure you you can't do it lightly. you have to th- be very thoughtful and very um, careful.
0: Mm. Wow yep they're not all I mean they're they're not just numbers they're people
1: exactly
0: So um, you decided to retire or you retired in 2017? Yes. Uh, but you didn't stop working. So you decided to go towards the nonprofit sector. Uh, yes. And you are now where well, you're involved with a program or an organization called Her Justice. Yeah. Can you tell me about what um, Her Justice is?
1: Sure. So I was introduced to Her Justice um, a few years ago when I was uh volunteering for an organization called the National Council of Jewish Women, and there we did some advocacy work uh, in the areas of immigration, Um, and I did a panel discussion, and I wanted to bring in uh, individuals from different organizations that were doing both legal representation, but also Social Services, and I was introduced to her justice that way. I met uh, one of the staff attorneys, and she became one of my panelists. And her justice is a organization in New York City that represents women and families that are victims of either sex trafficking, domestic violence. So we, uh, so her justice um, represents women and children who are victims of domestic violence or sex trafficking, and they're represented in any sort of matter that they would have, whether it's landlord-tenant because they're being evicted by their landlord, or they are trying to divorce their abusive spouse, or they're trying to adjust their status uh, through being a victim of domestic violence, or being married to somebody who's a citizen, so so immigration-related matters. And the way the organization works is that we do the intake. So we have Mm -hmm. amazing relationships with community centers. So churches or small uh, social service communities in South Bronx or in Queens or Staten Island, who, you know, might learn about whether it's a church or small organization might learn about a a, a woman or family who is being abused or being trafficked. So we learn Mm -hmm. about, about, women that way. And then they come into our office and we do the intake. We assess their Mm -hmm. case, their needs. And then what's remarkable is that Her Justice is actually mostly funded by the law firms that do pro bono work in New York City. So we then refer our clients to an attorney at a law firm who is doing the work pro bono. And as you can imagine, an attorney at a big law firm who's doing corporate work might not have a lot of experience in a landlord-tenant case or an immigration case, so we also have attorneys that supervise these lawyers in their pro bono work. So it's an amazing relationship. Um, we you know, get the referrals, the clients, and we then mentor and supervise attorneys at law firms who are actually representing our clients. Um,
0: Well, well, what is the um, percentage of uh, refugees and, you know, that that her justice is helping? And has it gotten, has it increased because of the pandemic?
1: That's a really good question. So the, the, I don't know the percentage, to be honest with you, uh, Mm -hmm. about whether it's immigration versus uh, landlord, you know, uh, uh, sorry, family law. But I I would say that more we have more immigration cases than we do family law cases. Um, Mm. And um, COVID has has proven to be uh, difficult in some ways. But in other ways, it has been a little helpful. I would say, for example, uh, courts have been closed, and so uh, individuals who were supposed to appear for deportation proceedings, um, those cases have been moved, and so those deportation proceedings are not happening. And as a result, you know, individuals are, are remaining with their families and, and are not, you know, facing immediate deportation. Um, There are also, you know, deadlines for filings of different kind of paperwork for adjusting status have been extended. So that's given people more time to sort of gather their documentation and working with the lawyers um, remotely uh, to work on their cases. So I think that's been sort of another another positive. But also, Mm -hmm. I think this is domestic violence um, month, so, you know, would need to bring up that. COVID and, you know, being sort of forced to be at home and with all the pressures and worries, and even, you know, many people who have lost or have had family members get sick from COVID has created a lot of stress. And so there has been an uptick, a very significant uptick in domestic violence cases. And so, um... We work closely with our social service partners like Sanctuary for Families, GEMS, that are other organizations in New York City that help um, relocate women who are in domestic and abusive relationships or help them find uh, other social services, whether it's, you know, therapy or housing or even just being moved with their families for their safety. Hmm. We've seen a lot of that.
0: Has the numbers increased or decreased of of women who are trying to get help to get out of their abusive relationships of domestic um, relationships?
1: It absolutely have increased. Uh, I just read a, an article in the New York Times. I think it was just yesterday. This week alone, three women in Manhattan have been killed by uh, their domestic partner. Um, and and I don't remember the statistics. I will actually find it for you, Tess, because it, it is definitely um, frightening. Domestic violence cases has risen significantly.
0: Oh, and it doesn't help that they can't reach out, even if they wanted to, if they're being forced to stay in because Correct. of the lockdown or even by their own abuser. Yeah. Uh, it's It's frustrating, and it's also... Um, it's maddening because you, you know, you would hope that these women could find the way to get out of their, um, the situation, but it doesn't, it's harder because of the pandemic and the lockdown. Um, what happens to women who are, um, uh, whose filings have gone past the deadline? What happens to the, um if if they can?
1: That's, really, that's a really good question. So I think a lot of the work, and I, I, I haven't been involved in it quite recently, but I, I was in, um, I guess it was in June, um, we've been applying for extensions. So for example, a DACA recipient. So the DACA mm-hmm. is deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's individuals who've been brought to the, young people who are brought to the country by their parents and have been um, undocumented. And so DACA allows them this special uh, ability to be able to receive documentation and work or go to school so long as they are, I believe, under 28 and have not been uh, arrested or convicted of any crime. And so we've been processing DACA renewals. And they did extend the deadline. So that, that was really helpful. But before that, we were either working to get DACA applicant applications through or um, asking for extensions.
0: Hmm. And what happens if a DACA recipient winds up having a criminal record? Does that know yeah. their um, their filing um, and
1: what it happens to them? so what ha- what happens is uh, with the with a DACA applicant. Um, Mm -hmm. In many instances, the government doesn't even, when I mean the government, I mean immigration, because maybe the schools and and other social service agencies that are the government might know that this young person is living in this country um, undocumented, but immigration does not. And so a DACA recipient before they're a DACA recipient would have to you know, think very long and hard about do they want to apply and weigh now having immigration know about their undocumented status. And many young people have obviously taken the risk and have applied for DACA. But one of the risks, as you just pointed out, is mm-hmm. now immigration knows you're here. They've given you a working permit. It's not, it's not citizenship. It's not permanent in any way. It's just A two-year documentation that allows you to work and and maybe go to school. And now the government knows that you're here. So if you do get yourself arrested, or are, you know, convicted of a crime, immigration immediately moves for deportation. And you can very quickly be in deportation proceedings and eventually be deported. So for many young people, it is, you know, a potential risk.
0: And there's no way to fight that once they've been apprehended. It's a, it's
1: a, it's a difficult one. I have not Mm -hmm. handled any of those um, cases, but um, I know they're, I know from colleagues that they are difficult.
0: And what about the families who had sent their kids here who are DACA recipients? Do they, are Are they penalized as well if their child or their young person goes back because of that?
1: yes. so so that's a, another interesting dilemma. A lot of young individuals were afraid, and we did a lot of these um, know your rights um, presentations or or lectures at at community centers or at churches, educating people because when DACA was first, you know rolled being rolled out, Many young people were excited about the possibility of of having this, you know, albeit temporary status and hopefully eventually becomes permanent, um, that it would expose their families because their parents were also undocumented or their aunts and uncles or grandparents also living with them are Mm -hmm. undocumented. And so in, you know, putting these applications forward, you know, attorneys um, have to be very careful not to expose family members to to that. So, um, our clients' um, correspondence with immigration uh, comes to her justice. It doesn't mm-hmm. go to the home. So, in that sense, you know, we're we're trying to protect uh, our clients.
0: Okay. So, what happens if the your client contracts COVID, and they are also um, and they also are a DACA recipient who is past their deadline. What happens to someone who gets caught in that whole cycle of well UK you can, can they can they still stay in the country and be looked at or or I'm sorry, um, can they stay in the country and also be taken care of and um, and treated for COVID?
1: So once you become a DACA recipient, um, you can, I believe, receive social services. Um, and and so I don't think getting COVID should impact your DACA status. Um, but, but I think what you might be referring to is that many immigrants, whether you're um, documented or not, are fearful. And we saw this a few years ago of going into court or going into hospitals or going into even food pantries. When I worked at the national council of Jewish women or volunteered there, we had a food pantry and we had a soup kitchen. And during, you know, all of the, at the beginning of Trump's administration, when he was had the Muslim ban and he was really Mm -hmm. empowering immigration to go out and do those raids and even, having ICE go to courthouses and, 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 and scoop up undocumented individuals, the, a lot of immigrants were afraid to go to a soup kitchen or a food pantry or
0: mm-hmm.
1: even send their kids to school sometimes. So that, you know, we did see. Um, and, and that required the social service agencies and even, you know, places like Her Justice Mm-hmm. going out into the grassroots communities and explaining to them that what their rights were and, you know, how they could protect themselves.
0: When you did that, did they, were they still afraid and did not want to be part of uh, or, or not partake of your, of your services because they were afraid?
1: That's a really great question. So I remember um, back a couple of years ago, we had done a few Know Your Rights presentations, and we had these you know, lovely attorneys and corporate uh, law firms in Manhattan who were going to do these presentations in their midtown offices. And we sent out flyers and notification to uh, different communities saying, you know, have your constituents come and hear how they can apply for DACA or how they if they're a victim of domestic violence how they can adjust their status through VAWA and people were not coming people were Mm. not coming and then we realized we they're afraid to go to these you know corporate offices there's a lack of trust so what we ended up doing with some work with um these uh, organ- social service organizations is we've identified churches or community centers and th- those organizations gathered the, the people. And then we had mm. our attorneys or had, you know, volunteers go and do the presentations in their safe spaces. Mm. And that was more successful. Um, you know, more people turned out for that.
0: Wow. Huh. You, uh, her justice definitely. It's a huge service for immigrants and um, refugees, or basically anyone who needs services. Um, And that's that's
1: also really nice about that um, is that Mm -hmm. we do the legal representation. But if we have people that come to us that we realize, you know, needs. you know, social services like counseling for their their children who might have been mm-hmm. witnesses to domestic violence. Um, that we work closely with um, different organizations, but also in New York, there is uh, there are these um, family justice centers,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they are in the boroughs. And what 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 they do now, which is really interesting, is so there was this whole movement and is still going on to uh, protect victims that were sex trafficked or were, you know, prostituted by by pimps. And so oftentimes, and this is goes back to even when I was a young prosecutor, uh, you know, a, a woman would be arrested for prostitution 10, 12 times, and they'd spend four or five days in jail, and then you'd see them again next week or next month. And very often, their pimp would be in the court pay their bail and you know take them back out well Mm -hmm. now there is in the family justice centers um there are therapists and there are social workers and even police officers in the vice units have been trained to identify potential victims of trafficking and so they're counseled you know do you you know want to continue doing this would you like to get into a program and there have been many many success stories where women have entered into programs and received services and then have been able to successfully expunge their prostitution arrests Um, and there's been more effort into going after the johns and the pimps and not always Mm -hmm. just prosecuting the women um, so the family Justice center does does that. It's a community based um, it works with community based organizations and it partners with you know city agencies that provide you know counseling um, safety planning, case management, and all kinds of other things that 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 you know young victims might need uh, and it also helps uh, women who might be victims of just a domestic violence situation.
0: Wow. Um, that's really, uh, that's great to hear, um, especially now, you know, with so many women who are, um, who are being abused and, and it, you know, whether it's a woman who's out on the street or, or basically from home, it's good to hear. It's good to know that there are services, that you're providing the services that they all need.
1: Yeah, I think it's oh. really important to understand how to do that because a regular courthouse that is seeing, you know, DWIs and is seeing robberies or is seeing all these other cases, they're not equipped to manage, you know, victims of sex trafficking or domestic violence or even understanding, you know, all the nuances that go into trying to figure out how to help somebody like that. So it really is um, amazing to now have these family justice centers in New York City that focus specifically on these kinds of, uh, of individuals and matters.
0: Wow. Um, so where, how long do you pl- um, plan on being involved with her justice not not that you've been involved with them? How long do you think you'll be on this? track
1: yeah so that's great so uh, right now uh, because of covid i'm actually living in connecticut but at some point i will return to new york city and and offices will open up and things will get back hopefully to a, Mm -hmm. a new normal but a a kind of normal i hope to get you know much much more involved so um right now um you know the help that i've been doing is is helping the attorneys connect with the different prosecutor's offices, because since I've worked at them, I have really good relationships with, with former colleagues that are there. And so I've been able to put them in contact with each other for uh, different, you know, work that they're doing together, but eventually mm-hmm. I'd like to go back and, and take on, you know, cases again. Um, so I, I don't have any plans to not do it. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of how to re-engage um, and, 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 Add value. If you if you have other
0: goals, what would that be? Personal goals. What are your personal goals currently?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So you know, obviously, I, I'm I'm interested in continuing to be an advocate, but I'm also really interested in sort of um, working on being, you know, a, a more authentic me. And so mm-hmm. I think during COVID, I've had the opportunity to sort of take things down a notch or two and reflect. And uh, so I've been eating more healthily. I did a cleanse recently where um, I introduced more plant-based food and uh, took out some of the foods that I knew were, were not sitting well with me. And I'm mm-hmm. exercising more. Um, and I've been painting a little bit uh, this summer. So sort of personal goals are to focus a little bit on myself. I have two children, one who's now uh, graduated from college and is working kind of on his own. And I have a daughter who is a senior in college. And so um, maybe taking care of myself a little bit is is a personal goal.
0: Oh, that's always needed for Absolutely. sure. When would you have any goals for her justice?
1: Sure. Um I think one of the things that I mentioned that I started doing a little bit this summer that I actually think I could add value in is,, uh, for example, when a woman is the victim of whether sex trafficking or domestic violence, and she, calls the police and the police come and there's an arrest and there's a prosecution, um, mm-hmm. that victim of a crime who might be undocumented and who may never be able to uh, get status in another mm-hmm. way can apply for legal residency through a uh, law that's called VAWA, Victims Against uh, Domestic Violence Against Violence and they could apply for status, and that requires having either the police or the prosecutor's office that helped prosecute the husband-boyfriend that you know either was battering or was trafficking the victim to write a letter in support, and it, that's called a certification. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes, uh, getting the police or the prosecutors to write these certifications takes some work. And because I come from that world of law enforcement and prosecutorial, with my prosecutorial background, I have relationships. And so I have been successful in helping her justice clients get certifications from Mm -hmm. um, law enforcement, but not only get the certifications, but also when you are trying to get your status through VAWA, you also have to explain any interactions you've had with law enforcement. So if you have been prostituted or trafficked you might have a lengthy criminal record and now it's important for your application to explain those cases and so having prosecutors or law enforcement corroborate that you were trafficked or you were a domestic violence victim and and were involved in certain you know criminal activity as a result also is incredibly helpful to your application and eventually obtaining status and so uh, my goal and my hope and then you know going forward is to improve the contact between her justice, clients, and law mm-hmm. enforcement.
0: And is there anything that you would say to a young person who wants to get involved with her justice?
1: Well, sure. It's an amazing organization that is always looking for, Volunteers, but they also have wonderful internships for young people that are interested in helping with even translating um, or doing in t- intake of cases or assisting as a paralegal, the attorneys. So it is an organization that uh, is, works very well with volunteers and young sort of internship opportunities. Um, but it's also an organization that that has great relationships with other social service agencies. So if Her Justice isn't, you know, the one and only you know, the place that you can you know, get involved in, if you look at the website, HerJustice.org, you can see the partnerships that they have with other uh, organizations, many of mm-hmm. them that are equally uh, wonderful to either volunteer at or work at. OK,
0: thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners?
1: I would just you know, going back to where we started Tess in terms of you know my dad and 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 how you know i I was raised to 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 uh, help people, I would say now more than ever, there are so many people and and under Covid, we've seen so much you know pain and suffering. And there is so much unemployment and poverty and families at risk that I think now more than ever, if you can find a way to help someone, helping one person is so amazing that Mm -hmm. I would just say, find a way to help someone.
0: That's so true. And what advice would you give your younger self?
1: Um, that's a tough one. I think women, we tend to be really hard on ourselves and we tend to, um, not pat ourselves on the back enough. And, you know, for me, there are a few things that I wanted to do in my professional career that I thought, oh, I'm not ready yet. Like I need to do one more case, one more investigation before I, you know, put myself forth for a promotion or before I put myself forth to, you know, another opportunity and I would say to my younger self and to young women, um, trust your instincts, trust that you're good at what you're doing, and um, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> mm,
0: I love that. Wow. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me and talking about your various careers. And I really appreciate it. And I'm sure my listeners will be very, uh, I'm hoping that they will take it all in and see that, you know, there's so much out there that they can really help with. So
1: yeah, thank you, Tess. I mean, what you're doing is incredible. I mean, you're, you're gathering women, and you are identifying, um, you know, this need to, to, to hear and understand other people so that we can sort of be motivated and understand ourselves and be motivated to do things and to continue the work that we do. So thank you for doing this. Uh-huh. I
0: well, I appreciate that. I look forward to uh, speaking with you again. Absolutely. So thank you.
1: All right. Enjoy the rest
0: of your day. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Maria Mostajo on Revwoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Women. You can listen to Revolutionary Women on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast.